This is More Games Than Time. I'm Lee. I'm Roger. We have more games than time still. But, uh, <laughs> Slowly working our way through. We, we have managed to play a few things and, uh, and have an interview where we're going to be talking about underrated and obscure games. And really, what does, what does that mean? Does it mean anything? Why, why am I here anyway? Who are you? <laughs> Peace, mate. So, Roger, I've been playing a game called Ravage Dungeons of Plunder. Okay. I, I'm starting to get an idea of what the theme might be. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it does what it says on the tin, as they used to say in the adverts over here. Um, so this is a relatively small box dungeon crawler. Um, I say relatively small, it's... Uh, the same height and width as a sort of standard Agricola box, but not quite as long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it works pretty well for what it is. It came out, uh, it was kickstarted a couple of years ago, I think, basically a self-published game um, designed by Ian Schofield, who also did all of the art as well as public- publication on it, mm-hmm. um, which might sound like a red flag, but the art's actually pretty good. Well, same, same sort of thing with Heroes of Tenefer, isn't it? Uh, possibly. I mean, the art's better than Heroes of Tenefer. Um, but, I mean, as someone who is essentially unable to draw, I can just stand there and look at mine. So. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. I did art A-level. Did you know that? <laughs> Sadly, that talent seems to have left me around 20 years ago. Yeah. But no, so this game works, um, works pretty well. It's... Uh, the gimmick is that you're orcs rather than your standard heroes. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the enemies that you can come across in your dungeon crawl is a hero. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, but beyond that, um, as I say, I mean whether that's a gimmick, whether it puts some people off, I don't know. Um, it, it that's you know really a very superficial difference to the game um what it comes down to is it's, it can be played solo it can be played co-op or it can be played competitive um how the different modes work i can't really tell you i've only played it solo sure um and from that point of view what, what you've got is a fairly light dungeon crawler that plays in about half an hour mm-hmm. um and in that, it's it's solid and it does what it does very well. Um, at the start of every turn, you flip over a card, much like you do in, say, something like Warhammer Quest from 25 years ago. But rather than telling you which tile to place in, that card is the tile. Yeah. So you do um, have a map. Yeah, so it streamlines I, things I, I quite well. I assume that that was what a dungeon crawler did, but then I've played things like Tenderfair that, that, that dispense with that, so... Yeah, no, I mean, I think a traditional dungeon crawler, um, you, you do have a map, um, and that exploration part of it is a crucial part of, of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not just going and beating things up. So you, you turn the card over and it will have some little white arrows on there, which you have to line up with little white arrows on, um, either the card that you're stood on, your, your figure stood on, yeah. um, or an adjacent one to that. So it can be up to two cards away. 
In, in the game rules, it refers to them as tiles, but they are cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so you build up your map that way as you go. And the second thing you do on your turn is you turn over a card from the, I think it's called the Glory deck. For the most part, probably 60-70% of the time, this is going to be a monster that will spawn on the card that you've just revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also be a trap. Very rarely, it can also be something like a magic potion that you just happen to win at that point and go straight into your possession. Random treasures left lying about the place. Exactly. Um, and this deck of cards, uh, so the first deck, the, the tile deck, is the timer. In a solo game, there's 10 of those and then the boss card at the bottom. So you know exactly how long the game's going to last. And I think that scales up then um, for multiple players because every player does the same thing on their turn. They reveal a card, they reveal a monster. Right. So for a solo game, it takes about 30 minutes. And then I think you add 30 minutes for every player. Whether or not it would outstay its welcome at the higher player counts, I really don't know. Um. So you've got these custom dice, much like you do in something like Descent, second edition, different strengths of dice as well as a, a, a trap die. Um, and that's really sort of governing the strength of your character. What it does that's interesting is um, each character has three tracks, four tracks. There's your health track, um, and then there's your leveling up track, your energy track, and your what it's called teeth track, which is like a currency. So at the end of every round, you can use your teeth to buy items, you know, magic potions and so on and so forth. But during the game, the energy track will go up and down um, depending on what happened to the dice that you roll. So on the dice, some of them are hits. They can be one, two or three hit, depending on the strength of the dice, or they can be an energy. If you roll an energy, you get to move your energy track up. Mm-hmm. You spend the energy to use your special powers, which you know could boost your dice in defense or attack, or that could be something else that it's going to do. But when you spend energy, you also move up on the leveling up track. So there's this interesting push-pull there of you, know, you want to use these special abilities in order to level up. That will cap out at four on the leveling up track. And if at the end of the round you've reached four, then it resets to zero and you can level up by flipping over one of your special ability cards, of which you have five. Mm. Um, there are four characters in the box. Each of them has seven of these ability cards and you use five in the game. So there's a bit of replayability then, customization for how you want to use the characters. And the characters themselves are each very different as well in terms of how they play. Um, there's your sort of traditional run up and hit something with a big axe character, um, a ranged character. There's the, a, a shaman, um, which has, you know, got the magical abilities that tie to various sort of animal creatures, um, and can mm-hmm. also take over enemies and, uh, manipulate them. And then there's, uh, the cultist, which is possibly my favorite of the characters. Mm. Um, he's got some healing abilities, so he can choose to take extra damage and then one of his abilities will let him heal damage to himself. So there's another sort of, you know, nice push and pull in that character there um, and he's also got the ability to to raise the undead and control extra characters which in the solo game I think is actually makes him maybe one of the easier characters to play with right um, because as I say at the end start of every turn you flip over one of these cards 60 to 70% of the time it's going to be an enemy 
they don't scale with your abilities. So right at the start of the game, you could be turning over one of the tougher enemies. Can you run away from them? or You can run away from them, but only as far as the edge of the board, which again, at the start of the game, is one tile. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can't kill them in one turn, and then you turn over another card, card, you get to the second enemy out on the second turn, suddenly you've got two enemies to deal with, and you're only one person. You do get two actions on your turn, which can be two attacks, or it can be a move and an attack. But you can quite quickly start to get swamped. Sure. Um, so, you know, there, there is, as you say, you can run away. That is a tactic you can adopt. Um, some of the tiles have um, features on them when you reveal them. They've got um, healing points on them or energy boosts, and you can sort of, you know, use that to your ability, move on to them to use that as well. Um, it's it's not the most, you know, the, the deepest game. No. But for what it does, as I say, small box, 30-minute dungeon crawl for the soloist, I think it does it very well indeed. And particularly one that does does have a map rather than saying everything is based on the card draw. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, it, it is, you know, a, a traditional dungeon crawler in that respect. You know, you're, you're playing on a board, albeit one made of cards. Um, you've got standees rather than miniatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it, I don't know what more to say about it really. It work, works very well. Um, does what it says on the tin. And, uh, yeah, I've just been having a look through some photos. It, it looks as if it has a f- fairly comprehensive set of standees. Um, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it, each enemy has different levels of in it. Um, either three or four different levels of dif- difficulty, hardness, whatever you want to call of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one of those levels has its uh, you know, unique standee that matches up with it, um, and that's identified by uh, a marker, you know, a symbol in the corner that corresponds to the card. Yeah, well, one of the hidden benefits of standees is you can at least make the thing look exactly like the illustration of the book that says this is the one you should now pull, or on the card yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so there's no room for any confusion as to what you're using there. So... Yeah, I mean, this is what, a 2018 publication. I don't think yeah, still, it, still fairly recent, games. but um, yeah, exactly. I think fairly obscure. As I say, it was uh, basically a self-published game. Um, there was or is meant to be a sequel, um, which was also going to be a Kickstarter. It was scheduled for Kickstarter at the beginning of last year. Um, my understanding is that the game was finished. Um, review copies were printed up and sent out to reviewers ahead of the Kickstarter campaign. There are two levels of it you can play on Tabletopia. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got delayed for two reasons. One, pandemic um, yeah. meant that, you know, Ian Schofield, the designer, publisher, artist, had to work from home and um, do homeschooling and all the things people have had to do and just didn't have the time to devote to this. Yeah. Um, and two was Brexit, unfortunately. Sure. Um, basically with the customs issues that have um, become apparent, I, th- I think he's sort of slightly scared of trying to deal with those logistical issues. Yeah, at the moment I can I can see this is swaps of Delgore sitting on um, BGG without a publication date. At the yeah. So, yeah, so that's yeah. the, let's say, the sequel that it, it exists in some shape but may or may not ever get released at this point. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the latest update he gave on it was that it was uh, he, he was exploring 
and buddying up with another publisher to get it out. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going for another game from a year earlier than that. Uh, mm-hmm. I got got to play face to face for the first time in a while. Illimat. Oh right, I think I played that with you once. You may well have. I've I've had it for a while. I I, I was on the original Kickstarter for it. Mm. Uh, designed by Keith Baker, and I, I discovered while while looking up stuff for this that there is a whole class of card game I hadn't been aware of, the fishing <laughs> game. Uh, which is basically you have you have a pool of cards mm-hmm. and you you pull cards out of it by playing a matching card from your hand. Right. Okay. And it's basically that um, there's a, a game called Casino from 1800, which has a lot of the same features as this. I mean, it's not it's not identical, but uh, mm-hmm. it's clearly an ancestor. Um, the game was inspired by a photo shoot for the Decemberists. Um, for, for the what? Sorry, a popular beat combo, my lad. <laughs> I have I have been able to say that to an actual High Court judge, and he knew what I was talking about. Uh, anyway, they, they they had this photo shoot where where they were playing a, an obscure game in a bunch of uh, secretive looking places, and then mm-hmm. they decided, well, hey, why don't why don't we uh, produce a game that is actually what this thing looks like? As you For, do. Fortunately, they asked somebody competent to design it, so so it's actually an enjoyable game as well. Um, so you got. Four or five suits of cards, mm-hmm. value, values one to thirteen, um, and four fields on on the playmat. Uh, if I remember rightly, the playmat is a cloth, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it would be nice if it were a bit thicker. Mine has hasn't torn or got stained or anything yet, but I, I don't entirely trust the printing to hold in the long term. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a four-card hand normally. You can sow a card, place it into a field. You can harvest, so you play that card to take one or more matching cards from from a field. Mm-hmm. Or if, if you have a five, you can pick up a two and a three because they add to five, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, or the complicated one, which is stockpile. It, it's very badly explained in the rules, but basically you can make a stack. There's a, there's a three on the field. You you have a you have a five and an eight. You put down the five on the three to say, right, this is now an eight. And if nobody else takes it on your next turn, you can take it with your eight. Right. Okay. Uh, it, it's fiddly. It's fiddly. It probably works better if you're card counting. To be fair, but fortunately, none of the players. Like I mean, does card count? I, I, as I say, I, I know I played this with you. I think it was at Aircon a few years ago. Um, I don't remember much about it other than you know it, it was solid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you you obviously like it the fact that you're still playing it now. <laughs> um, but I think also you know what, what you've the, the way you've just described the game um, is is perfectly fair in that it's if you like mechanical abstract games you're probably yeah. going to like this. If if you don't, then you're probably not. Yeah, I do. I do tend to like an abstract game more than a game that has a nominal theme but doesn't really play to it. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm told by people in the industry that abstract games sell very very badly compared with um, something with a nominal theme to it. So, yeah, I'm out of step there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you you score based on the most cards you took or most summer cards that sort of thing. Um, mm. There are various editions which can can have a bit of a random effect. Uh-huh. Not which is not ideal, but uh, it's a game that looks good. It's it's one of the games that I can set it's, up. It's and certainly I, attractive. I would generally find somebody wants to come and play it before I finish setting up, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's a deliberately old-fashioned look, which is ple- pleasant, though I I could have used a modern-styled rule book, and I'm still it's on my list of rules to rewrite from scratch. <laughs> uh, this is a long list, Roger. <laughs> yeah, um, there it is. Two to four players. There there is a solo mode in the Book of Victories, which was right. a Kickstarter extra. Uh, though mm-hmm. they got permission to republish it on BGG, so it's on there as well. Okay. Uh, I have I have not tried the solo mode. Uh, I think this is probably best at three or four. It's okay mm-hmm. at two. Right. So Inamat uh, by Keith Baker, and there's some, some sources credit Jennifer Ellis as well. I don't know what role she may have had in it. Okay. Good. So that was... Um, so we're slowly going back in time with these games, are we? Looks like it. Okay, good, because I've been playing DR Congo. Ooh, how good Ooh. about it? <laughs> so this is a game, yeah, but I don't know what you have heard. This is a game that was um, several years ago now by the Wagner Brothers, who, um, for people who are unfamiliar, were basically doing the Kickstarter thing long before Kickstarter existed, at least in spirit. Um, by that, I mean that they tended to release fairly idiosyncratic games, Um in a limited number, but mm. mainly in Britain. I don't know how far they travelled. Um, History of the World obviously got picked up for bigger publication. That would be their biggest release um, going back, I think. And yeah, that, that, yeah, that in itself shows how long they've been producing games for, although they've recently retired, I think. Mm. Um, DR Congo is riddled with those idiosyncrasies and slightly odd sense of humour that they put into all their games. Um, not least, I mean, the box cover is a very pulpy box cover, <laughs> um, which, which has on it, on, under the, under the cover, on the side of the, the base of the box is a quote from, um, Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. Hmm. Quite what that and the general pulp tone have got to do with what's actually fairly dry. Maybe it's not dry, but you know, but what's basically an economic game. Hmm. Um, I don't know. That can, I think possibly that does put some people off. Um, the addition I have has a cloth map with it to tie it into Illimat that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they, the Ragnar brothers went through a phase of putting cloth maps out with things. I don't really understand why. Um, I've never used it. I use the board because it lies flat. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll also mention briefly that I don't know if you're aware DR Congo has had some minor controversy associated with it, some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is basically the controversy surrounds the fact that this is a, a capitalist game. It's a game of capitalism. Mm. Um, the basic premise behind the game is that you can, you, you, you play an entrepreneur in the DRC and you win by bringing the, bringing the DRC out of its economic malaise um, and getting rid of the um, revolutionary forces, insurgents, uh, making it a a peaceful country that's financially stable. Sure. So the controversy is that some people view that as too Mm -hmm. pro-capitalist. I will be the first to acknowledge that there are inherent problems in the current system of capitalism as it exists in the world. However, I would far rather have that conversation 
then let's play another war game. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not quite sure why it's as controversial as some people would like to make out, but I thought I'd you know, mention that off the top of the bat. Um, so, again, this is a game um, like uh, Ravage Dungeons & Plunder. I've only played this solo. Mm-hmm. Um, it does play up to four players, I think. Um, and that is as a competitive game. Um, but in all versions of the game, there is the government as an extra player. Right. Um, so in the multiplayer game, you there are three minister roles. In the multiplayer game, you will bid on um, taking one of those roles at the start of your start of a round. Mm-hmm. Um, in the solo, Shades of Hunter, but obviously not in detail. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder if that might have been part of their thinking. Actually, <laughs> um, in the solo game, you are always the interior minister, so you always get to spend the government's money developing things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also roll a die um, to decide how much you would have to pay if you want to take on the the extra abilities of one of those ministers in your turn. Okay. Okay. Um, so as the game goes on, you develop provinces um, in the DRC by investing in industries, um, mortgaging those industries to develop cities, um, investing in infrastructure to transport goods around the, the country and to export those goods, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can export them through Kinshasa and the main port out to the West Coast, then you'll get a higher price than if you export them through the east back into the interior of Africa. But presumably that's easier to do. It's easier to do depending on where you are on the map. Yeah. And if you can't do either, you have to sell them onto the black market, which is a lower price again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned insurgents and trying to make the country peaceful. Um, something else that happens throughout the game is uh, insurgents, different levels of um, insurgents appear in provinces through the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to defeat them with peacekeeping troops, your own, other players and the governments. Yeah. Um, and it's a very simple combat system where basically there are two levels of insurgent, as I said, level four and level six. Every peace tri- peacekeeper you've got present in the same province is counts as one. Um, your city level, if you've got a city there, is the same, so one, two, or three. Mm-hmm. And then you roll a die and add it all up, and if it beats four or six, you've defeated them and they go away. Right. So, uh, yeah, that couldn't be more simple. And what it does mean is once you reach the point where you've developed a level three city, you're more or less assured to to beat the insurgents every time. Yeah. Um. So it, it's saying yes, there there is a wargaming sort of element to it, but it, it is not a wargame in the sense that it's usually understood. You're not doing any sort of tactical combat or anything like that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you're not moving troops around. There's no um, tactical positioning or anything else. It's simply um, yeah, ro- roll a die and it's greater or lower than four or six. Once you've mm-hmm. added in the, your troops that are already there, yeah. Um, so each each round lasts for four phases. On your phase, you can build an industry, build some infrastructure, develop a city, um, or produce goods. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a great deal of choice. You're only going to do one of those things. 
Um, or you can sell goods is the fifth thing you can do. I've never, ever sold goods on on my turn. And the reason is because <laughs> at the end of those four phases, at the end of the round, you sell all the goods that you've produced. So you don't have to spend one of your earlier actions to do Not it. only do you not have to, but when you produce, you flip over your city to your your, your um, industry to signify that you have produced with that industry. There is no action to flip it back over again. <laughs> so you couldn't you couldn't produce sell then produce again to sell at the end of the round. You'd just be wasting an action. Right. <laughs> so I mean perhaps you might want to do that if you're desperate for cash and there's nothing else you can do but it's it's inefficient basically. Mm-hmm. Um the game lasts for six rounds like that. You win if um so on the on the score track um, is a, a city marker and a target. And every time you develop the city, the target is going to move back towards the city by a number of spaces at the end of the round, depending on where that city is. Mm-hmm. So you win if you pass the target, if the total number of cities outweighs the target. Right. And then in the solo game, that you've also got to score over 50 points. Yeah. And that's it. Um, it was... In my top 20 solo games a number of years back, it was for, for quite a few years, actually. And you'd think with all the moving parts that I just suggested, the insurgents, the provinces, um, you start in a different province every game, depending on your draw of entrepreneur, basically, your character yeah. in the game. They're linked to a certain province and a certain amount of starting money. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd think with all those moving parts, there'd be a fair deal of replayability. But what I'm beginning to find is that I'm doing the same things every game. So I do yeah. think it's a solid solo game. I do think it's a good, enjoyable solo game. But I do think there reaches a point where you're, you're getting less out of it each time. Yeah, I, th- I think with, with a lot of games, if you can reliably defeat it, then you may get a certain pleasure in the mechanism, but it's not really being a challenge anymore. Yeah, uh, my my usual solution to this is not to be terribly good at games, but uh, <laughs> for everybody. Yeah, and I think you know it's, it's important to say it's, it's not necessarily a solvable puzzle because as I say that it's it's not a static setup. You are doing mm-hmm. different things every game. You're not just doing the same. You know, it, it, it's not the same input, but the general pattern of how you go about doing things is you, going to be similar. You're going to need to make money. You're going to need to suppress insurgency. But yeah, and you're going. You're going those. to need to, to, as I say, you need to mortgage your city, your industries to to build industries as well. So again, there's that order. You've got to do these things mm-hmm. to build a level one city. You've got to mortgage one industry. To build a level two city, you've got to have a level one city and mortgage two industries. Yeah. The, so there is this, you know, the order you've got to do things in. Um, and yes, there's the the chaos of the insurgents and the order things come out in and your starting province and all of those issues and how the markets change in between rounds. Um, but, th- but nevertheless, there is an order you have to do things in. So I suppose what you might say is that there's variation in what you're presented with, but mm. the way you respond to it, there, there is a standard response to each thing that you're going to try to be, try to achieve because that's the thing that works best. That sound plausible? Yeah, or maybe it's better to say that you know your strategy is the same in every game, um, but perhaps the tactics of 
the order you do things in based on what's happening on the board are going to change. Mm. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people talking about this, and I've, I've just been flipping through the uh, BGG gallery, and most of the pictures are by people I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this counts as an obscure game, but not in your circle, then? <laughs> I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the the other one that, um, sorry, if we should say uh, DR Congo. Yeah, by the Ragnar uh, Brothers or Gary Dickin and the other two. Hey. Uh, another game that uh, is now on uh, BGA, and that, that's where I played it recently, but, I, but I've had a physical copy for a while, is Dice Hospital. Oh, which, right. This may be another one you've, you've played with me, as I say, I've had it for a bit. Uh, I, I don't I, think I have, actually. I, I was a Kickstarter backer on this one as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stan Kordinsky and Mike Nudd, uh, mm-hmm. 2018 publication. You are the administrator of a very weird hospital where the dice are your patients. <laughs> right. uh, it, it's basically a worker placement game. Um, mm-hmm. You have each turn you will receive three new sick dice. Mm. And your objective is to not not only treat and cure them, but for reasons which are never adequately explained, you want to get as many as possible fully cured on the same turn. Right. Uh, the, the first patient you release in a turn is worth one point, and then the next five are worth two points each, and then it, <laughs> then it starts going up. Is, is this why the NHS likes to queue people up, so they can get them all out the door at once? Yeah, presumably. Uh, <laughs> So dice come in red, yellow, or green. Um, some you, you start with sick treatment rooms and, th- and three standard meeples, and you mm-hmm. can add to these as the game goes on. If so, some rooms will only work on certain colours of die. Some rooms will only work on certain values of die. Uh, and right. some of the add-ons will say things like, when you heal a yellow patient, heal another yellow patient by one step. Mm-hmm. Or the rooms might say heal exactly three red patients of consecutive values one step each, which is right. very powerful. But you need to arrange it so that you actually have those dice because if you don't have the exact sequence you need, it doesn't do anything at all. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is you you only have twelve beds. Uh, you have three patients coming in per round, and there are eight rounds in the game. And you start with six. So, okay. is it three or six? Anyway, uh, in any case, you're going to have to cure a bunch of them, um, mm-hmm. or, or they're just good. Uh, if you haven't, haven't enough beds, then you kick out some of the old ones and they die. Uh, <laughs> just, just as in real just life. like real life. Uh, also, if the value goes, uh, if if you don't treat a patient for a turn, then their value goes down by one, and if they go below one, they die. Right. Uh, Dying gets you minus two points, but it also gets you a blood bag, which is a sort of quick fix um, for for various... You know, it, it, it's just a way, a way around the standard constraints. So, you know, it's not too so bad. Um, so it's not a very interactive game. Uh, mm-hmm. You are fighting a bit over the ambulances because they are sorted by severity of patients. So there'll be... Uh, you, you roll in a you know, 12 dice or whatever... Uh, sort them more or less into into order. So one ambulance will have the most severe, one ambulance will have the least severe. Yeah. Uh, whoever picks the lowest numbered ambulance obviously has the hardest job to do, but they also get the first player, mm. and therefore they get to first pick on specialists and upgrades and things like that. So that balances out, I think, reasonably well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, it's basically, um, unless it's an explicitly teaching game, everybody goes head down on their own board to sort out their own worker placement and which healing they're doing, which treatment they're doing. Right. Uh, that's basically it. Um, so what, what player yeah. count do you think it's best at? Um, let's see. I've not played it at two... I've played it at three and four, and that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the expansion, you can go to five. I haven't tried that. Right. There, there is a solo mode in the rulebook. Uh, mm-hmm. You basically beat your own score. Right. Um, the, in the expansion, there's also an automa, uh, which I haven't tried mm-hmm. yet. Okay. And in fact, I haven't tried the solo mode yet because a couple of times I've set this up at a convention between games and people have come along and said, hey, can I play this? So I've never actually played <laughs> to, the solo mode. To be fair, Roger, uh, conventions aren't the best places to try playing solo games. Well, sure, but you know, often I'm between <laughs> games. You know, I, I've, I've got something else starting in you know, 40 minutes or whatever. I, yeah. I don't, it, it's going to take me 20 minutes to find somebody to, to play stuff with who's actually starting yeah. a game right now. So I might set up a solo thing. I think yeah. that's when most people go and buy a coffee or something. Yeah, well, I hate coffee, so. <laughs> but yeah, if, if somebody comes along, then that's great. Best of both worlds. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a that, that's the base game that I've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, there are optional rules in the box of various modes to make it harder. Right. Uh, there is the expansion, which I haven't even tried yet. I've, I've counted that all the bits are there, and that's about it. Um, so you have the the city where you're actually sending your ambulances out to look for patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the investment mode where you can customise a tile, say this one will do what it says on the tile, plus an extra heal yellow or whatever and there's the maternity mode uh, so you get mother and infant dice which are of course different sizes Right. Uh, but but the infants don't don't get worse, you just have to release them at the same time as mothers or, you know, <laughs> the auditing gets all confused uh, they're obviously having a lot of fun with the idea of this it, it doesn't make a lot of sense but it's it's enjoyable. Uh, the character art is by Sabrina Merriman. I'm not very fond of the way she draws faces, but somehow in this I don't really mind it. And you, you, if, <laughs> if you, I'm if you not familiar box, with her art. Uh, it, is, if you see the box cover, the, the faces are all basically in that slightly cartoony style. Yeah, I, I think I have seen Dice Hospital as a box cover. I'm not familiar with any other games she's done. And, yeah, it doesn't... Perhaps not a lot to it, but I, I haven't felt I'm doing the same thing. Apart from anything else, the upgrades are random each game, right. uh, even if you t- even if you get the first choice of them. Mm-hmm. And while I have had some success by saying, "All right, I, I will always pick the highest ambulance, get the last choice of upgrades, but treat people who aren't terribly ill in the first place." Right. Um, last time I played, I, I, I everybody else ended up trying to do that too. So I I ended up with a, with a whole bunch of early picks as well, and that that seemed more or less to work as well. So I I think it's fairly balanced. There doesn't seem to be a dominant strategy at least mm-hmm. as, at least in the players I've had. Uh, okay. It's a bit more abstract, perhaps a bit more Euro than most of the games I play, but it it, it it's it seems to work for me. Mm-hmm. Good. So so that's Dice Hospital. So, Roger, you sent me an enormous box. 
of the, of this convenient small railroad ink roll and write. Yeah, it, it kind of took me by surprise. I must admit, <laughs> I thought I was borrowing this tiny little box thing, and then you brought out this coffin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I bought the original uh, red and blue retail, mm-hmm. and then they did the Kickstarter for the expansions and new versions, and yeah. I, so I, yeah, I, this I was this giant giant magnetic box with. The red edition, the blue edition, the yellow edition, the green edition, and then another box just as big with loads more expansions in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shut Up and Sit Down recently did did a review where, where uh, Tom went through all the expansions in a very short period of time, uh, giving his, his impressions of each of them. Right, okay. Well, that's more than what you're going to get from me, I'm afraid. I didn't make it as far as the expansions. Um, I did, however, play all four of the the core games, the base games, depending on how you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I played a couple of games each with the base game red and the base game green. Um, and then a couple of games each again with each of the expansions that were included in each of the boxes. Sure. Um, so red and blue um, are the they they came out first, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, that that that's the, the what you might call the basic railroad. Yeah, and then so green and yellow sort the, of the, um, the challenge version. Yeah, exactly that. They mix it up a bit. They add some extra things, um, which reminded me a little bit of uh, the difference between King of Tokyo and King of New York. Mm-hmm. I haven't played New York, so. But you're aware that it adds extra rules that makes it what they think of the the gamer version. But a lot of people think maybe it just takes away detracts from the core King of Tokyo experience. Yeah. So I'm not saying this necessarily does that, but I can see how for some people it might. Hmm. So the, the, the basic function of it is exactly the same that you're rolling these dice and you're connecting up points on the outside of your, of your grid, um, roads and rails, um, and trying to make the network work in the, the yellow and green editions. You've additionally got gold, gold cards. Hmm. Um, so did, I wonder if this came out after Sprawlopolis. Uh, certainly the challenges did. Yeah. So it sort of borrows that sort of you know, the goal card thing where you draw three at the start of the game. Um, and then I think in the multiplayer game, you're competing to get them first and you score points depending on who gets them first. Mm-hmm. In the solo game, um, you draw them in the order that you draw them in. Um, you write them down in that order. And then you score one or four points, depending on whether you get them in the round of three, four, or five, depending on the, the order that you drew the cards in. Sure. So you, you, you've got it, it adds a bit of time pressure that you know you, you want to try and get the the earliest one um, first, but you're sort of building towards the others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're using an expansion from one of those boxes, you use an expansion gold card as well. There are three in the box, so you shuffle them in and you draw one expansion gold card and two base gold cards. Yeah, on the basis that they give you other things to try to achieve rather than just the, the, the core game stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of um, lot of variability um, in that. Um, my scores, I think, across all... All four games with all the expansions didn't vary hugely. They're sort of between 50 something and 70 something. So a range of about 20 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got no idea whether that's brilliant, terrible or average. I haven't looked to see what the average <laughs> scores are on BGG. Um, 
yeah, mean, this, this was my. This is, this is one that's got got a recent implementation on MGA as well. So, right, okay. I, I think. I mean, this is my the originals. This is my first, I guess, what you'd call modern roll and write. All right. Um, I think you know previous roll and write stuff. You know, Catan, the dice game, and um, roll through the ages. The ones that have been around for a long, long time um, mm. before, possibly before roll and write was a, a phrase. It certainly seemed to happen very suddenly in, was it 2018? Yeah. And this was certainly one of of the first wave of that particular, Mm. all of a sudden everybody's doing one. Yeah. And I mean, it it differs from those earlier games, I think, in that you're you're not just ticking things off. You're trying Mm. to build something. And the, you know, the idea of um, trying to build road, road, road routes, rail routes, is perhaps a, a natural thing to want to do. If you're just doodling and squiggling, you're making lines, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the, the game the game works well. Um, it's something you can play. It's a 15-minute game. It's a solo game. You can play it sat on your sofa while you're doing something else. The components are all nice. Um, whether it's something that I would return to, I'd possibly not. Um but I can see, you know, why it appeals to people. I think of the expansions, um, the initial sort of blue red set. I think um, I liked the meteor expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, thematically, that made some sense that these meteors were bringing minerals to the earth, and you were trying to um, exploit those minerals. Um, the lava expansion in the same box was just annoying. <laughs> Um, the two expansions in the blue box, I'm trying to remember what they were. There was a, there was the lakes and the rivers, wasn't there? Yes. Now the lakes were, did what I assumed the rivers would do, which perhaps shows the difference between North America and Europe. <laughs> the lakes were an alternative, um, an alternative way to transport goods. Whereas the, the rivers, you were kind of playing a game of snake with them that you had to connect these things up, but then there was no way of crossing them from what I remember. Uh, yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah. So I think on balance of those two boxes, I preferred the blue box over the red, but the red had the best individual expansion in it. Yeah. Uh, Helmer Hack is def- definitely Italian. Lorenzo Silva, I assume, is. I don't know. But... Mm. Um, yeah, I've, I've barely played the expansions. A lot of the time when I've played this, it's been with people who haven't played it at all before. So Yeah, so this is all, all new information for you as well, then. <laughs> I, I've, I've played some of them a bit, but I have, haven't gone very far with them yet. Right. Um, the uh, green green and green and yellow. Um, green had some forests that you drew, and I can't remember the other one in there. Yellow, yeah. yellow is deserts and uh, yellow is oh, green, green yeah, paths. Des- the, the paths. Paths. That's right. Yeah. So that made that made some interesting sense. Um, and the paths, unlike the unlike the rails and the roads, that they're, they're paths that automatically connect. So they join up with towns as you mm-hmm. place them. So that was an interesting wrinkle. And again, um, I think much like the blue and the red, I think yeah, we're my my fav my of those four, my favourite expansion was in the red, but on balance I preferred the blue box. I think I preferred the green box. Um but the the best expansion of those four was for for my tastes, um, was the canyon mm-hmm. in the yellow box. 
And that was fairly straightforward. Um, you're just trying to build the longest canyon that you can. Um, and you can cross it. You, bridges are free. You can cross it up to 12 times across the course of the game, mm-hmm. which basically means you can cross it as many times as you like. Um, you need to do more than that, yeah. No. Um, I mean, bearing in mind that the game lasts for six rounds and you can only draw four road sections per round. Yeah. You'd have to cross it more than twice per round to, to need to use that up. Um, and it, it, with the gold cards as well, there's some interesting challenges in terms of, you know, number of times you cross the canyon with the same railway, that kind of thing. So that, that was interesting. Um, the desert I didn't find as, as interesting, or maybe by that point I was just getting a bit bored of the whole thing. I don't know. You certainly played it quite intensely, given, given our relatively short schedule for this sort of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I do try and, um, explore things properly when you send them over to me. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, a 15 minute game that you can play sat on the sofa is, um, you know, lends itself to that much like when you sent Maiden Quest over to me that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So as I say, I, I think you know, I, I can see, I can see the appeal of the games. Perhaps they're, they're not something that I'm, Desperate, you know, I'm not going to run out and pick up a copy of it. Um, I think perhaps if if you are just wanting that sort of 15 minute while you're doing something, watching the TV or something is a you know a bit of a distraction, then stick with the the red and the blue. Yeah, um, that seems fair. Yeah, uh, the, the gold cards perhaps make things more interesting if you're wanting a, a deeper experience or you're playing with. Um, I can see that that you know if you're playing multiplayer, that, that would become more interesting at that point as well. Yeah, since since I uh, passed that on to you, um, there's been a play by forum game on discussion to Kelly Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what one of us who who also had a copy just ro- rolled the dice and p- pasted photographs, right? And then, then we each individually went away and drew stuff, uh, which is obviously a, a easy way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that that was with the underground expansion, which essentially gives you uh, alternating rounds of above and below, right. And then you're trying to, you know, not put a station on top of a sewer because it'll crack the sewer. And that, that. <laughs> but but on the other hand, you want to link your underground system up up to the mm-hmm. stations and exits that you already have. So it, it makes it a much longer game, um, mm. and it, it it might start to overstay its welcome if it were face to face. But you know, spread out over several days. Yeah. On the forum, that that didn't really come into things. So. That, that's another way of. Uh, I guess there's also a challenge just in terms of how you draw things and distinguishing between things. Uh, you you have two separate boards. Right. In, okay. In mode. Um, I see. So a bit like Battleship, you're comparing your your grids across. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it's relatively easy to see which is the thing above the other thing, but there there are ways of marking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I don't I don't want to put a station on here. Yeah. And that that sort of thing. So. Okay. Yeah. Good. And, so that was Railroad Inc. And you let me nations, and it was very, very strange coming to it from having played the dice game. Uh, <laughs> but why, why is that? Well, that that seems to me, you know, a moderately fiddly, uh, but basically fairly straightforward game that I, mm-hmm. that I did very badly at. Um, and this is just more of the same, and obviously it came first. So maybe yeah. that suggests they did a good job in uh, cutting mm. it down because it, it is a very similar feel to me. Right. Um, it gets a whole bunch of things right. I mean, people think of civilization games that as things that have maps, but if mm. if you're in a scale of centuries, it really shouldn't matter no. how fast you move. 
And so it, it gives up the map, and you know, there's still plenty of stuff on the board. Even mm-hmm. in solo mode, it took up a, a substantial table. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't need that. It doesn't have that visual representation. It doesn't really mean anything. This It looks much more ferociously complicated than it's actually going to be. Um, I, th- I think that's a fair comment, yeah. I, I went through the setup step by step just to make sure I wasn't getting anything wrong, and mm-hmm. there's uh, here's another double page spread, and okay, what? what oh, wow, uh, how hard is this going to be? And it's not really. Oh, it, it, it's hard, but it's it's not difficult to understand. Uh, you, you've got these resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does a very good job of making you balance the resources. You can't just specialize in one thing. Yeah, I'm a little underwhelmed. Hmm. <laughs> No, it's not that. I mean, yeah, all right, I didn't love it. I did enjoy the games I played. Um, mm-hmm. But that that whole score comparison thing, I can see it working in multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, seem, it seems very artificial the way you have this... this um, I don't want to use the term automa because that means something specific to some people, but yeah, the, this yeah. artificial opponent that generates values. Mm-hmm. Which change over the course of the turn by various means, and and you're basically being scored on whether you do better or worse than it in a particular thing. Yeah, and that just felt weird as a solo game. I, I would mm-hmm. expecting it to be more um, consistently yeah, a, a particular thing that I had to try to beat. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It was just yeah. a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is a little odd, as you say. The, I mean, it's the, the military track, isn't it, where it can suddenly go up and suddenly go down between rounds. Yeah, and the the, the first round I played also, there was... Um, what What's the thing that goes against unrest? The, the, the good track that... Anyway. Oh, yeah. Cult, cultural literacy, or mm-hmm. I can't remember what it yeah. was now. Um, but I started off you know, slightly behind it, and then it, then it got a minus two and another minus two, and all of a sudden I, w- I was out in the lead without having done anything. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that, that's the thing that can change based on which uh, opponent card comes up in which order. Yeah. So, I, I do really like the, that, that fairly straightforward system of, okay, you've got four columns, you roll the die, one to four, it's going to wipe out that column. Yeah. Five, five or six, it does what it says on the card under five or six. This is nice and easy and yeah, mm-hmm. you can keep track of it, no problem at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I. It's still not going to be a game I love, I suspect. Though, but if somebody brought it out at, at a get together, I would probably now feel quite happy playing it, and I would expect mm. to have a good time. So, yeah. Could be one next time we get together. See if we how we get on with the multiplayer. Yeah, give it a try. Uh, yeah. So that was nations. So, we're joined this time round by Marcus, who some people may know as J-Play. Um, Marcus, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. I guess this is the very first time on an official podcast myself, actually. So, really, again, thanks for having me. Oh, we're yeah, privileged. <laughs> oh, come on. I, um, you don't want to yeah. go those unofficial podcasts. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm running this little channel, um, JPlay on YouTube. Um, I'm very active on, on BGG too. I'm typically doing, um, playthrough let's play videos. Um, mm -hmm. that's how I typically start learning games. Um, I was influenced by a lot of the big guns like Watch It Played, Rodney and so on, where I said, okay, that's pretty awesome. So I was watching reviews back then and, and things and always said, okay, something is missing. And back in the days, there weren't a lot of, um, full playthrough video. Yeah, you've, you've been going quite a while now, haven't you? Yeah, I think over 10 years now, I guess. Yeah. The, the cadence changed over time, really always depended a little bit on family situation and, and mm -hmm. job situation and whatnot. But I think right now, relatively, I, I really try to get at least one or two videos out each week um, these days. Um, I think it's still relatively low compared to some of the others, but yeah right now that that it's my schedule at least yeah. I, 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 to me it's very impressive you get that kind of that kind of output mm. and much like our podcast i think um you, you do a lot of solo playthroughs but also some multiplayer as well yeah again i'm that that's where i'm i think where my channel seems to have or is, is a little bit lacking focus at least that's how i typically feel so when i compare myself or my channel with some of the other let's say bigger players out there that's for mm -hmm. me where i see okay maybe that's part of the problem um that i'm really interested in too many things so i like solo plays every <laughs> now and then i like the net games um, like yeah my impression is it's more the my impression is it's more the type of game. So if there's a game you particularly like and you want to get a playthrough out for and it doesn't have solo rules, then you'll go ahead and play it multiplayer. Kind of, but I also am very willing to um, explore, um, let's say, unofficial variants for games. Mm. So I did for um, this Alexander Pfister game, um, Great Western Trail, um, where I also then met um, Will Gherkin, who was responsible for one of the awesome solo modes and we met in Essen and back then we were still staying in contact. So if there are solo rules, I'm doing this. Um, also, the thing has a little bit changed for me recently because um, as I'm now really able to play a lot of games with my older son, who is now 12, mm -hmm. um, it seems that my urge playing games solo or there is not really that much need for me playing solo games because most of the games I can now play with him and also my family too, um, which is also why I'm also now tending to play more multiplayer games recently, yeah. but I'm always happy. If there is a solo mode, I'm definitely giving it a try because this is there is an appetite and there's still people sitting at home, especially during the peak of, of the pandemic. I think a lot of folks were actually enjoying solo games. Um, that's, I think, yeah, I, I remember the one player guild when, when the, the various restrictions started was saying, so you want me to stay at home and not go out and not see anybody for a couple, for a couple of weeks or months? <laughs> yeah, okay, I got this covered. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think there is this huge, I'm not sure if that's the same one on Facebook, I think there are now how many... 20,000 members or so in this oh, really? wow. it's huge it's, it's really huge so the board game geek one is the largest guild on BGG now it is okay wow yeah bigger than the dice tower <laughs> which which I think makes Albert and Julius's podcast the most popular board game podcast doesn't it, <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you also sometimes you do some top tens Marcus and that's Really, why we've invited you on this time is you uh, you posted something on your Patreon recently asking for people to 
recommend some underrated games for you yeah. to explore. Yeah. And that's basically one of my next things. Though I was, first of all, very surprised seeing a lot of interest in these top 10 kind of games. I never did those because I said, who cares? I mean, people who are following my channel want to see. Let's my, my partner would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I just posted one because, again, I kept hearing this. So I call let's go for a top 10. And it was for my, let's say scale was mm. for my my stats that's very very impressive actually um especially the last one around uh thematic games um and then i said okay maybe there is a thing let's do these kind of things every now and then i will really don't want to do that every other day yeah but um ultimately i'm really looking for ideas and and recommendations on, on mm -hmm. what to do next and then i browsed through my shelf and said okay Let's look at some games. Then I saw this one game. I think it started with Dark Horse, actually, a game which I backed on Kickstarter more or less by accident and was simply blown away by the very crazy and, and very, very old school kind of graphics. Gameplay was amazing. But again, looking at this game, I said, okay, maybe let's do a video on, on these kind of things, really focusing on yeah, games that flew under the radar and what you said maybe are a little bit obscure and maybe not yeah kind of thing so we started talking very briefly about that didn't we and i said there's a game i said was underrated and i said oh maybe it's more obscure than underrated right and this is so this this is so this is the the point of this discussion really of um what do, what does underrated mean what does obscure mean are these labels even helpful and this is a thought that's sort of it bu bubbles away in my head every time that i see underrated games suggested on BGG, you know, recommend me an underrated game or this game's underrated. And the reason I think I sort of uh, question the usefulness of it is because I remember, so back in the 90s, there's a magazine in the UK called Guitarist. Mm -hmm. And back in the 90s, they used to have a reader's poll every year. They might still have one, I don't know. But two of the questions they asked every year was, who's the best guitarist in the world and who's the most overrated guitarist in the world? <laughs> and for a couple of years... Slash was in the top three in both of those categories. I was categories. going to say that. <laughs> yeah, it was the early 90s. So, yeah, it was everywhere. <laughs> but the, po the point to me was to be underrated, or to be overrated, rather, you have to be rated. Mm. You can't be an overrated guitarist if you're just rubbish. Somebody's got to think you're good. Right. right. <laughs> so, underrated, that sign of fall, does that fall into the same category? I don't know. Do, does it does it do you have to be rated in the first place do you have to be fairly widely known in order for some people to say well actually you know this popular game that you're all saying isn't very good is good mm. and i think this is where where things are getting tricky so that's a very good point so are we talking about really um an average rating of a game for mm. a guitar player or whatever a movie or whatever you want to play are you going to take into account the actual sales numbers for example how yeah. many forum entries does it has how many responses does it get how many review videos are out there and maybe how long is it on the market i mean especially for board games a game can disappear after its first print run i don't know after three yeah. months and then you really have to be lucky to to get yourself a copy for a normal price that is yeah so it is an underrated game simply one that hasn't been rated by many people because they don't know about it. Or is it one that's 
very popular, very widely known, but underappreciated, maybe? I think it's both. Um, and then I think one, again, goes back to taste. Um, let's take, um, Al- um, not Alexander Story, Stefan Feld's um, The Oracle of Delphi. Mm-hmm. Which for me, it's basically a racing game. Um, mm. and I, I really like his dice, um, manipulation kind of games, which is something that he put in the last couple of years. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, this game fell flat. I'm pretty sure it was not unnoticed. I'm pretty sure a lot of folks are aware. I mean, it's a Stefan mm. Feld game after all. So whatever he's publishing, someone typically looks at it. But, um, when I, brought this to our gaming group and also following some of the comments on on BGG and whatnot, it really seems that this was really underrated. So it was noticed, but not a lot of folks... Steffenfeld's a a really interesting case in point, actually. I mean, he's a designer that most board game enthusiasts have heard of. Every year he comes out with a new game. Every year people go, oh, wow, it's a new Steffenfeld game. And then by Christmas they go back to playing Castles of Burgundy. (laughs) <laughs> that's a good point. That's, is, is that fair? <laughs> that's that's really something which I also noticed too. I mean, I, I really, as I have a lot of different tastes in board gaming, I also noticed that my let's say gaming fellows I meet on whatever from week to week are also different. So there are these more core gamers in respect to. I think it can't be less thematic for these mm. guys. They simply want to enjoy a relatively simple but well designed game, and then. Another week, I'm really playing more conflict kind of games. Uh, I don't know, dudes on the map kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is a different taste. But coming back to Stefan Feld and when talking to these more core gamers, who I would really say they're very experienced, typically very clever guys, very analytical guys um, who really understand these rules and also want to go get behind a game, want to play it more than once um, and mm-hmm. really want to master a game. And these kind of, or these guys are really typically saying everything that Stefan Feld released over the last, I don't know, five years, ten years or so is pretty much a piece of crap. They all want to go back to <laughs> Castles of Burgundy. That's, that's really what I keep in. For me, um, always looking for the new stuff. Um, I'm really happy trying these things out. Mm. And again, I played, I think most of his games, really hard to tell if it's all, but really most of his games and, not really a fanboy, but I would say um, I'm okay with developing um, your designing skills and trying something mm. new and, and going going different. So did, are we suggesting that Stefan Feld's an overrated designer or that his games are underrated? I'd say <laughs> the level of expectation is incredibly high. I mean, take... Yeah. take Knizia, for example. I mean, mm. he's the same guy, but um, I would say he that we made a, some some great games. Um, no questions asked about this, but he plays it much simpler. So he invents invented some stuff. I mean, he's doing a lot of these auction games. So he's typically very true to what he did for the last X amount of years. So. I mean, the only real groundbreaking thing that he did new was this um, quest for Eldorado, where he yeah. really went into the, the sort of deck building race game, building stuff. Yeah. Really, a different kind of game for Knizia. Great game, so I'm really, really mm-hmm. big fan of this. I, I played this is, I think we played it. I don't know, twenty five, thirty times with the family easily. Um, but he's more true to himself, whereas I think and. Also, very high expectations, but I believe, as far as I remember, I've never heard anything bad about 
techniques here. So if he releases something and someone is, let's say, playing these kind of games, mm. I typically don't hear anything bad about this. I, th- I think his games are normally solid. Um, I also don't think that his new releases really have a great level of expectation around all these days. Yeah, they did for a while, I think. You know, people saying, well, yeah. this guy is great, therefore the new thing is is going to have to be great. Or has he gone off for a bit? Or Yeah. yeah. I think this is where, where Stefan Phelps kind of is already. And the same is true now. I think New Rising Star being Alexander Pfister in these kind of... So he's mm-hmm. also releasing a lot of games over the last couple of years. Yeah. Typically good games. Um, the last one, this, this cloud, cloud, what was it? Cloud, cloud age, I believe, or, um, oh, felt a little yeah. bit flat for me from a thematic perspective. The same was with this, um, blackout Hong Kong, which was mechanically not bad. Mm-hmm. Also, he's not really reinventing a lot of things. He's, recycling a lot of his mechanics for now but he's in the same boat mm. so i think a dlp now also announced two new games and i think uh, or at least one expansion for maraka ibo and then another game yeah which, yeah coming up from capstone in english yeah, yeah, i think it's, it's typically where dlp is then doing or yeah capstone is then releasing this in english um so for for essence spiel obviously and mm. i'm pretty sure he's in the same boat so the expectations are high but I haven't seen anything real obscure from these guys. Underrated, mm. yes, and I'm pretty sure Cloud, Cloud, I think it's Cloud Age, right? Is, um, falling a little bit under the radar. Maybe it was because of the pandemic and the lack of buzz on, on Essen Spiel. I mean, they did this Spiel digital, um, but I'm pretty sure it's not the same thing. DLP was not really well prepared. I think they had one yeah. very poorly recorded playthrough of Cloud Age. Um, so maybe that was part of this. I think, yeah, I think Essen messed up a lot of things for a lot of people last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe we'll be looking back in years to come and say that there's a lot of underrated and obscure games released at the end of 2020. Right, right, right. No, yeah, I so certainly so. one of the reasons I like going to Essen, uh, something I nobody really talked about before I first went, but I discovered it when I was there, was all the games that I will see there that will will just never be advertised mm-hmm. anywhere else I'm going to see it. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, and I'm pretty sure that was missing from last year too. I think yeah. the the few big players, yeah, they they had their bus and everything, but especially really roaming around the let's say smaller halls on Essen and really finding this one obscure and, and strange little game, and mm. maybe mm. looking nice or looking looking different. I think this is something that they missed. And right now, I'm still not sure how this year will end up. They're still on target, and I think they have their concept for whatever. But seeing now numbers going up in Germany too, I would be surprised that it's actually going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm keeping the weekend free, but it's hopeful rather than expecting. I still have the week week off typically. So I might be there. Similar, but... Right, right. But yeah, I think I'm um, starting now off with uh, Stefan Feld and Knizia for a stream about um, obscure and underrated games. Yeah, <laughs> it was one example. Perhaps not the designers people would have expected for yeah. obscure. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. I mean, one of my favorite designers is Bernd Eisenstein. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And I think his games do fall more into that obscure category, and, and, and I say obscure deliberately rather than underrated because I think a lot of his games just aren't heard of. Mm. Um, you know, may, maybe Peloponnese people have heard of, 
but once you get beyond that, not so much. Right. I think that's that's pretty much the mainstream game from Eisenstein, and it's it's really this is I think an outstanding game, also something mm. we played I don't know thirty forty times in the family here too. My son is a big fan. I think he won. 70% of the game. But apart from that, it's already going down. I mean, the next one I know is this, I think, Carthago, right? It's just the one, mm-hmm. one that's kind of popular, but also already, I know, it starts when, when, when Peloponnese is on 10, then Carthago is already down at, at 3 from a um, publicity kind of perspective. Yeah, And then I think it, it really drops off. I think you mentioned something in, in my email. I already forgot the name, actually. What, what, what was the other one you were playing? It might have been Pack. Which is a game we discussed yeah. in the podcast fairly recently, right? So yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, this and that I mean that's a game that first came out in two thousand and eleven, and was um, reprinted two essence ago. I think it surprised me that it got a reprint. Um, but yeah, and that was one that it came out and got some very positive reviews. And I think Burnt's games. Um, they're effectively self-published, aren't they? He, he, right, you know, they're, well, yeah. they're released by Iron Games, which is exactly. him. Um, so that's probably a, a large reason that they're unknown. Right. right. No, I think that's... that's uh, I'm, and this is where I'm always thinking about what can we do to whatever make these kind of games more shine? I mean, it's really tough to compete against something like um, re- or not reprint, but the re- not reprint the um, Black Tower thing that has been, I think, two years ago, or Gloomhaven, or these kind of mm. all these shiny things. I mean, it, it, it's really tough to yeah, more or less compete. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the hobby sort of. It's, it's become like that, where yes, there's the Gloomhavens, but they're few and far between. For the most part, there's games that are, are published by, I was going to say large publishers, but large within the industry, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Capstone Games just now, who've within the last couple of years become quite big within the hobby. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah Fantasy Flight. Um, th- these are you know Days of Wonder, anything by Asmodee really. They're, they're the publishers that are they've got the the links, the presence that they can get out and get their games noticed. Right. Anything that's published by anybody else is almost automatically going to be more obscure. Mm. Yeah, well, here here in the UK, the main importer is now owned by Asmodee, and yeah, they're importing other people's games. But even, yeah. even with the best will in the world, they just don't have the same channels of communication of this is going to be available at this date. We got this many people want to buy it and so on. No. There's just a bit more, bit more friction in there. Um, one of the reasons I, I was uh, talking about this at first was uh, there, there are several games I've played, well, demoed at Essen, uh, usually for indie boards and cards. Mm. Which mm. you know, people have enjoyed them and we've, we've sold them off, off the stand and then I've just never seen them again. Um, yeah. Uh, one, one of those, well, in 2017, we had Witching Hour and Pirate 21, and these are both, you know, quite minor mm. games, not particularly by people one has heard of. Um, but they were, they were fun and people liked them, and the only copies I've ever seen are the ones I own. Mm. Uh, and the one that really surprised me was, uh, Senators, which I, it had had an earlier, yeah. uh, non-English edition. But this this is designed by um, Ricky Tata, the guy who designed Coup. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think working with his son, working with somebody oh, yeah. with the same surname, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it yeah, it was the first English language edition. People loved it. Uh, we sold out right. of every copy we had on the stand, 
and everybody was saying, yeah, yeah, it's going to be in shops soon, and then just nothing. Mm. <laughs> so mm. nothing happened. The the mainstream, I think, this is where we still didn't hit the. I mean, yeah, we have some mainstreamish kind of thing for really these kind of Ravensburger kind of games and really the, the these big games. I think this is where we have mainstream, but for anything that's mm. Outside of whatever Spiel des Jahres or um, Kennerspiel des Jahres, these kind of things, um, the overall amount of actual serious players is very low. I mean, we are really talking about print runs of maybe 1,000, yeah. 2,000, 250 sometimes. It's, it's really very low. And I think for these kind of things, it's very, very mm. expensive. Unless, I don't know, production changes to some extent where you really do this kind of print at home or maybe even digital. Uh, running this thing digitized, um, I don't know, Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator or whatever, um, I think it's, it's really tough to keep the interest because so much stuff is getting flooded onto the market. I'm, I'm, I, re I know yeah. I did, um, I think a couple of years ago, I did a very regular thing about Kickstarter um, videos. I, I really had three, four videos of these kind of things where, but this was during a time where maybe you had three, four board game Kickstarters a week or so. You can still do it. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think this is um, what's being published by the hour. And then it's not just Kickstarter. You have GameFound, you have Indiegogo, yeah. and all these kind of things. I think it's simply too much that's getting there. I mean, it's not a bad thing, obviously. I mean, yeah, competition mm. is definitely good for the market. It's fresh, but I think it's it makes things much tougher. And then if you don't have the big publisher behind you, like Asmodee, and I think right now Asmodee is... Yeah, the one piece about, I mean, they bought basically everyone um, yeah. who had a name at some point in time. Um, it's, it, it's really tough, um, getting this interest up. And sometimes it's really bad. I mean, there are really great games out there, which would really mm. are, I mean, they're really ripe for having a reprint of some sort, but yeah. whoever owns these, these rights says, ah, oh, let's not reprint that. I mean, yeah, we could reprint 5,000, but 5,000 is not enough. We want to look at bigger stuff. I mean, 10,000, 20,000, these are the numbers we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a, a successful Kickstarter game and I'm, you know, I'm using success in inverted commas here is, is one to 2,000 copies. That, that's a big print run for most games. Mm. The ones that get to 10,000 plus are, are the exception. Mm, right. I mean, this is then Gloomhaven or these kind of things. Yeah. Or, mm. or whatever. Yeah, I, I think there's the usual selection bias of, you know, you, you look out at Kickstarters and somebody says, look, Gloomhaven did this. And, um, mm. oh, what's the, 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 yeah, this other huge game did that. And then you don't see the, the 10,000 mm. that didn't fund. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think if you had to talk to the average person on the streets and talk board games, say, "Oh, Monopoly," and yeah, you know, Gloomhaven is is Gloomhaven is the monopoly of the, the of the hobby. It's this uh, unreplicable uh, big thing that's just come out of nowhere and it's made money. Someone plays stuff beyond Monopoly and Risk and so on, then maybe Gloomhaven has a good chance of being mentioned. Um, these yeah, days. yeah, but you, you, you know what I mean. Then it is Catan, but... Catan, of course, Carcassonne. Yeah, all moving in there, true. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Just that rare thing that yes, it has made money for the designer and the publisher. And that's, yeah, that's not a criticism. That's a good thing. No, absolutely. But for the, for the most part, it just, that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, it's 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 really a um, also a frustrating benchmark, maybe if you want to compare mm. itself to Gloomhaven. Yeah, because it's it's a unicorn. It's this rare yeah. thing that just doesn't normally happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure he's still surprised himself. Actually, <laughs> what happened to him? <laughs> I'm sure. A lot of time and, and energy into. I'm sure. What do you think? Um, do, do you? Speaking of obscure games, do you remember Forge War? That was this big Euro game that he had before Gloomhaven. Yeah, I I never played this. I saw it on a table yeah. once, but I think it wasn't bad from what I can remember. But as I don't really, it was it wasn't bad, game. and yeah, perhaps that's an example of a. I think mean a bit. It's a good example, I think, of an obscure game. It's it, it wasn't bad. Um, I don't know that I'd call it underrated. Mm. Because, as we were saying earlier, I don't think it's widely rated enough to be underrated. Um, but the jump for him between the success of Forge War and, yeah, you know, it was the success in the terms we were just talking about, one to 2,000 copies. Mm. The jump from that to Gloomhaven was... <laughs> Do you know yeah. how well it's sold? It's unbeatable. What, what were the figures for Gloomhaven back then? Um, how many copies... Gloomhaven, actually, but we would be really curious. I mean, I got myself a copy from the. I think it was the second. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's had more yeah, than one I, Kickstarter I campaign, then several retail reprints I got now. From the second um, campaign, actually, and was still surprised. I mean, I think I paid one hundred bucks, mm. and this is really a game we played. I don't know easily. 80 hours, 90 hours, 100 hours so far. And we are still playing it. I mean, again, also during the pandemic, we were pausing it. But mm-hmm. now everyone is basically eager getting back. So you've got your money's worth out of it. the expansion, right? So, so I, I've got really... some min- minimum numbers. Uh, the second Gloomhaven Kickstarter, <laughs> the, the big did, one. Did you pack the sequel? Well, no, this, this is the second Gloomhaven Go Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, got 40,000 backers and then Frosthaven yeah. got 80,000. So That's crazy. Exactly, over a hundred thousand, easy. So, so I think we've defined that that's not an obscure game, anyway. <laughs> um, depends now a little bit. I mean, in respect to Dungeon Crawler, I would say it's very obscure, and I think this is why it was so successful, right? Because it did things differently. So it did not roll any dice. It's, I mean, it was considered to be the Euro game of mm. Dungeon Crawlers um, for a lot of those. So. To some extent, I mm-hmm. would say that was it did something very differently, but it was not completely obscure, yeah. you know, um, or or underrated. No. Again, I was not looking so much at obscure games. I think the only real obscure game I have is maybe again this this Dark Horse, which I'm pretty sure no one knows. I did actually demo the solo mode on my channel some point in time. Even the designer chimed in and was surprised that this game was still getting some love on, <laughs> on some actual YouTubers. Um, but apart from <laughs> that, um, I, I really don't have... I mean, there is this one other game which um, I really would like to point out. is this Three Kingdoms Redux. Um, also, it's more like a myth than it is actual obscure game also. It's definitely not underrated because mm. whoever is playing the game is very fond of the idea but for whatever reason these guys um i think it's 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 Euster and, and christina they're the two designers behind they're also publishing the game they didn't really catch up on on getting a proper publishing model for this game it's really a great game it's a little bit yeah. obscure because it's exactly a three-player game which is something that 
doesn't happen too often, actually. Mm. You really have to play that. It's an awkward number. Yeah, it is. But it's it's really such a enjoyable game. I mean, in the meantime, some of the more fancy YouTubers also covered this on their channels, but it's still flying on. This game is still very much alive. At some point in time, it was really tough to get, but I think right now you can order it. I think they ship mm. it from Singapore also, if I recall that correctly. Um but this is really one of the games that from a from its pure presence, so it really has this almost mythic kind of thing. A lot of people want to have it. It's still very expensive mm. because shipping is killing you. Um so these this is really one of those games or like the this this other um thing, um the, the Star Wars based game, the Queen's Gambit, um also something I've yeah. chased for such a long time. This is also mm. for me a very obscure game per se because everyone wants to have it it seems. It's of course I think it's selling now for nearly a thousand bucks or so if you really want to get yourself a copy. These are for me some of the obscure games because they are out I, th- there. I think that's I think that's what people call Grail games, isn't it? Like the Holy yeah, maybe Grail. It's a Grail game, but it's also yeah. makes them, yeah, for me, pretty obscure because I'm not even sure if that's a ter- amazingly good game, actually. But I, for whatever reason, <laughs> I wanted to play it. Yeah, yeah the, the main so one I'm it's... looking for is uh, Leminga, um, which we've talked about on the show before. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, I, which I've played quite a bit on Yucatan. Ah, uh, okay. And I'm looking for a copy, and you know, the, the, there's a guy selling it in Slovenia. Uh, I don't really want to pay the shipping and all the fuss that's going to come with getting so, it into the UK. So if if Essen does happen, then you're going to be touring all the second-hand booths. Mm. Yeah, not that there's, I find <laughs> a lot of second-hand stuff there, but yeah, I, I gather it was very popular in Germany. Though there's, you know, they talk about you know a huge championship a few two or three years after it had launched, but uh, yeah, it's just <laughs> vanished now. Right. Uh, there, there's one um, I, I backed basically because. I, I found the Kickstarter more or less by chance and thought it looked good and these guys obviously haven't done the whole hire a publicity expert, hire a Kickstarter mm. expert thing. And I just felt they, they they deserved a bit of support for that and the game seems actually to be pretty good as well, which is Gladius, uh, Alexandro Boldi, Victoria Cagna. Uh, basic mm. idea, you, you, you are betting on gladiators but the other players don't know which ones you bet on and then you, you manipulate the fight to mm. make sure your guy wins. Right, or loses depending on which way you bet. Actually, but yeah, that's that's the thing. It's it's not a game one hears of. They don't have the big publicity thing. So, I I I Mm. what what I mention when I get the chance. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's that's your that gets your thing, and this is typically also what I like to do on my my channel. So every now and then, I'm really reviewing or not really, but playing um, print-and-play kind of games. Um, so I did mm-hmm. Drifter, for example, which was done by by awesome guy Ken, who really started to write this kind of choose-your-own-adventure. I think it's, I don't know how many pages this game has. It's basically this kind of thing. is you're a cowboy, you do this and that, and then whatever you use, go reading there. If you do that, then you roll a lot of dice in between and stuff happens to you. But this is what I also like to do if I'm really... Think there is a game which needs some more attention. That's something which I say, awesome. Let's let's play it on on your channel. And I think more than once, I at least I was able to help this game a little bit or this designer a little bit because I think about this. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, I think this is where, I mean, it's very easy to go for these, I don't know, modern kind of board games and everyone wants to see those things. But what I also noticed is um, when you are not necessarily the first when you present a new game, but maybe when you're not even the third or fourth who are reviewing the game or showing off a game, maybe you are the 12th. Typically, people stop watching this <laughs> content there because they have seen it so many times now mm. on um, the one. So, and I think this is where you can make a difference on your channel, on a podcast to say, let's yeah. focus at those things that fly a little. It's, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. Let's try and pin this down then, shall we? What, what's <laughs> definitions? What, what's an obscure game? What's an underrated game? Roger would like to throw in what's a forgotten game. Mm. And then follow-up question. Are, once we've defined what these things are, is it even helpful? Well, forgotten is easy. It's um, obscure, but used not to be obscure. Anybody want to bite? <laughs> no, I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that rules out the ones you were talking about demoing at conventions. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, the, the one I would say is now forgotten is one that I actually, when I had people over a couple of weeks ago, saw on my shelf and thought, I haven't played this for ages, uh, mm. which is Castellan or Castellan if you're American. Mm-hmm. Um mm. It was the big game that we were demoing at my first couple of Essens, uh, doing stuff for Steve Jackson Games at that point. And, you know, the first time we, we had the prototype set with great fanfare. And, you know, people liked it, people bought it, and then, yeah. presumably, you know, it, in the natural way of it things... It was a it big just, game at one point. Yeah, it just went out of stock. Presumably they didn't reprint it. It's not even slightly available anymore. Mm. So... Mm. But these kind of games can come back, actually. I'm pretty sure this is what, what happens every now and then when someone remembers and say, oh, there was this one game, maybe let's put a new twist to that. Or, I mean, even Gale Force 9 did uh, the reprint kind of for Dune, mm. um, which was also for a long mm-hmm. time a grail game for me, but I was not willing to pay 200, 250 bucks for these yeah. some pieces of cardboard, actually. Um, and especially I had Rex, um, which, which I typically used to play back then, but then Game Force Mind said, let's reprint. And I think they now announced something new coming up this fall. And they're now looking to really redesign some of the things as far as I understood. So right now it really reprint as it is with its pros and cons, I would say. I think again, Dune still is yeah. a very cool game, actually. Of course, some of the mechanics are a little bit dated. But I think really looking at it um, with some pair of fresh new eyes and taking the original ideas that were really actually good, so all these kind of backstabbing and betrayal, which game like this, but maybe, yeah, I don't know, adapt the overall hmm, combat mechanic a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> so I think these things happen now, um, really, that, that games are getting reprinted. Or take Luna, for example, which which was reprinted, um, all, I think, two years ago or so, one year, one year ago. But I think that, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Um, but I would agree to that, that this could be obscure. A game that was great back in the day, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and is basically forgotten. I think that's, that's a very solid um, definition for this game. Then maybe let's look at games that really flew under the radar. So do you have something where you say this should have been somewhere else? This should have been basically top ten kind of material, for example. In your from your from your perspective. Did you see any of those? I mean you mentioned something early on from, from the indie games. Well that that was that was the way I felt about Senators. I mean, we were getting such positive reaction from 
pretty much everybody who tried it, mm. as I say, selling a lot of copies, mm. and then just never heard of it again. Presumably it's out there. I've, I've very, very occasionally seen it for sale somewhere online. But mm. have, have you ever heard of a game called Frog Riders? Mm. No. So this is a similar thing. This went back when I used to demo games for Pegasus. This was their release um, four or five years ago. And it's a, it's a solid family weight abstract game that's got a really stupid elves riding or go- gnomes, I don't know what they are, riding frogs theme put on top of it. And it's a really, really solid game. Everybody I've ever recommended it to has really enjoyed it. Everybody that demoed it at the convention really enjoyed it and bought a copy. Never heard of it since. Mm. Mm. But is that, I mean, that, that maybe leads to another good question. So what could make a game obscure or underrated? Is it problem with theme for this one, for example? Do you think that? I mean, it could be, as I say, I mean, that, and that's a, you know, it's a family weight game. That's not a, a really heavy game, but Pegasus, you know, in Germany, at least they're a big publisher. Yeah. So, I mean, that, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of reach to, to the market. You'd think they'd be able to push that game, but even within the Pegasus catalog, some games are hits and some aren't. Mm, right. Uh, and is that a decision pretty, they make or is, I don't know. They did pretty much the same thing with Robin of Loxley, where Pegasus also did the publishing. It was published by a different, or was originally published by someone else, but I think Pegasus did the whole selling aspect of them. It was mm. really tough to get this game. So I do remember there was a convention here uh, near Frankfurt um, where I, more by chance, I was able to, to borrow myself a copy. It is a two-player game. It's designed by Uwe Rosenberg, so typically mm-hmm. a designer name, which yeah. Yeah, <laughs> usually people play but no one knew this game and then i played it with also with my son and we really loved it i mean it's really fast paced game yeah I mean, that, that was a two player only game wasn't yeah, it yeah exactly it's a chess yeah movement, which was sort of racing game yeah um and then i really went there to the convention and went to i think there were of course merchants or salespersons or board game shops were selling there mm. and asked all four of those do you have this game no i don't who is it published by and look, oh it's pegasus i should have it actually but <laughs> it was really tough and then again more by accident my friendly local game store had it then in mm. stock and i immediately bought myself a copy i demoed it on my channel and again it's uwe roseberg and we said come on this must be this must spark some interest but no one was yeah no you're right that one did kind of sink without a trace and i did, did it come out around sort of late late spring early summertime i wonder if that was mainly why it was exactly it was a very um strange timing when it was released yeah it was not directly an essen release as far as i remember but it was an essence so you could definitely get it but mm. um a lot of folks more or less missed this one again keep reiterating myself i mean that's it a... typically you have this name and everyone is buying yeah. These mm. names. yeah but it's an interesting decision isn't it i mean you you, t- you think if you release a game sort of you know spring summertime when there aren't conventions you're you're putting a game out when nobody else is so you, you should be getting more attention mm. but often those that that is the time when the games just sink without a trace mm. seems that even if you know s and or gen con even though there's 50 100 games coming out people are looking for new games at that time and maybe that's why released outside of that window they they just don't work i think it also helps at, at least at gen con not so much at essen because you don't have so much actual playing at essen but if if you see people you know everybody is playing this particular game if, um, i'm seeing the same thing on mm. every table what what is that i'll find out what it is maybe maybe look into it i, I saw that with terraforming miles and i'm sure that helped 
Mm. Um, mm. It's a, a distinctive game. Uh, it looks interesting, and so that that helps to make it popular and show it to mm. more people. Well, Terraforming Mars is a good example because um, these guys, these brothers, um, they also released the Wilderness game um, before. So they really went from a very... This is really an obscure game, by the way, mm. this Wilderness. I did also showcase this on my channel. It's very take-that-kind-of-game. I think it even has player elimination in it. It was really not well-received. A lot of people liked it, but um, on a grand scheme of things, it totally fell flat on a lot of things because of some of the outdated uh, mechanics. And then they came up with Terraforming Mars. And this, I mean, this was a completely different beast. I mean, it's really selling like crazy. Mm. Um, I think there was just this campaign for this pimped, pimped version, I don't know, with a um, one-meter kind of box. They had to put around it. I, I wonder if one of, one of the guides for definitely um, highly ra highly rated or at least very popular is when you can use that name to sell a different game, like you know, mm. Pandemic Rapid Response or Terraforming Mars, whatever the new one is. Yeah. And that that's kind of a problem if you don't see your name, but you see something like from the designers that also designed Terraforming Mars. That's typically telling me something, right? <laughs> yeah. I've, I don't think we've got to any particularly great conclusions here, but... Uh... In the fine tradition of this podcast. <laughs> uh, there's a simple answer to what is an underrated game, of course. Uh, if you just look on Board Game Geek, if you've rated a bunch of games, it will tell you which games you've rated higher than the consensus. All right. This uh, is true. App apparently, my, my top one is Red 7, which... Well, mine definitely isn't an underrated game. Lord of the Rings LCG is my <laughs> my game I'm most out of work on. <laughs> but that's also a good point. I mean, um, maybe that's would be good, another good point for me to, to look at games which I think are overrated, actually. So uh, I, I mm. don't want to really spoil anything here because I'm pretty sure that's some not really very popular opinion here on, on some of the designers where I think they're a bit overrated. Um, but that's that's a very good point. I think I have more games which I think that are overrated than which are games that are underrated. Certainly that stats thing on BGG that Roger just mentioned, if I go to that, uh, my, my variance is more um, lower than the average than, a, than higher. Mm. Yeah, but... Was that always the case? Um, because I do remember when I started rating games, I'm not doing this very regularly, I was starting very high, but I think these last couple of two, three years, I'm also gotten more, let's say, critical about things. So really, mm. I say, I when I see a game that has an eight, for me, that already means, oh, that's pretty solid game. I mean, this is something which you typically want to play, maybe even a 7.5, but I think back in the day... I, I mean... I think to me, you know, a six, six is over five. It's over halfway in the rating scales. It should be a decent game. <laughs> so maybe I'm harsher with my ratings than other people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I end up thinking in a fairly subjective way about this. I mean, I have never played a Martin Wallace game that I really enjoyed. But what? That, that does not mean I think Martin Wallace is a bad designer. It means I think he's not designing games for me, which right. is fair enough. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, I think we've all, yeah. and again, that's individual taste, isn't it? And, you know, ratings, personal ratings are going to reflect that. Mm. And this is where I think I'm a fanboy, so I think Martin Wallace never <laughs> let me down. <laughs> yeah. You've done it now, Roger. Marcus is never coming back on the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But, um, so, you know, some, sometimes you can say this game gets this particular thing wrong. Mm. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I think more, more generally, it's just how did I feel about this and why specifically, you know, mm. if, if I particularly dislike that mechanic and it uses that mechanic, well, I'm not going to enjoy the game even if it gets everything else right. And, that, and I think that's, yeah. that's what a good review does just to make, make it clear why I liked or didn't like. Mm. Right, I mean, yeah, yeah, I if reasonable. you don't like auction kind of games, um, you will typically also not enjoy games by Knizia, for yeah. example. Or so, yeah, I think that's, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah that's... Okay, so some games are underrated, some games are obscure. They may mean things, they may or may not be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, where we're at. Mm-hmm. So how would you consider your games, by the way? I mean, you're also designing games. So which which niche are you in, or where where would you? I, I would I would say my games I would say my games are obscure. I I don't think enough people have heard of them to ever say they're underrated. <laughs> Which isn't to say that they're good. That's like Roger was just saying. You know, if 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 they can be better than Martin Wallace and still be bad. <laughs> But yeah, they're definitely obscure. Are you working on something else right now? Um, yeah, I've got a, a few games that I'm I'm working on at different stages. Um, but I've you know it's fitting it around other things in life, so I'm, I can't say I'm actively working on them yeah, right now. Okay. Okay. So well, well, thank thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Appreciate it. That's okay. Is there anything else you want to plug? You did a pretty good introduction at the beginning there, Marcus, but I think you've got a, a German language channel as well, haven't you? I do, but um, this was more of a favor I did for someone because there was this one publisher, not sure if you heard about this, Spielerschmiede here. Um, they are also sometimes um, using or, or mm-hmm. using their, their channel. Like a German equivalent of Kickstarter. It kind of is, so they're really doing their yeah. own games, but they're also translating games. And back then yeah. I said, okay, yeah, they want some German reviews done by me. And then I said, yeah, but I don't want to mix and match on my channel. So I created this other channel. Every now and then I do something even with my wife, but um, ultimately I always decided to come back to to the English world. It's simply, uh, you get more viewers on the international <laughs> market. It's simple as that. And, and we should add as well that you have a Patreon campaign, so people can support you if they watch your videos and like them. Yes, absolutely. Um, again, not not something I make my living from, but um, <laughs> definitely helps me um, justify some of my board game purchases um, with my family here. <laughs> <laughs> Balance things out a little bit, yeah. So thanks for mentioning. So yeah, you are free to join me on Patreon <laughs> and support my little channel. Very good. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Marcus. No, thanks for having me, and it was great fun, and have a great rest of your day. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. So, thanks for joining us. That was More Games and Time. I hope to be back again next month. Uh, until then, uh, you can give us a shout uh, most easily on the, on the forum, which is linked from wherever you downloaded this. <laughs> to Kaylee.ly. Yeah.